This is Andy Crouch, and welcome to the Beer Edge Podcast. Here's a piece of advice. Find someone who talks about you the way Teresa McCullough talks about Charlie Papazian's Brewing Spoon. As the curator for the American Brewing History Initiative at the National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C., McCullough spends her time trying to capture modern American brewing history and manifest it for the viewing public to experience. Yes, McCullough is a beer historian, but she's already heard all of your jokes. She's got the greatest job in the world. She must drink beer all day long. How can you get her gig? Well, one way to do it is through more than a decade of dedicated study and scholarship at Harvard. When the Smithsonian hired her in 2017, a bit of a media whirlwind followed, replete with good-natured ribbing and laughs about the position. But McCullough's work provides a critical and much-needed understanding of how Americans have used material and visual culture to define race, ethnicity, and gender especially in the world of food and drink, and now she focuses on beer. Specifically, in her work as curator of the American Brewing History Initiative, McCullough collects documents, objects, and oral histories from the talented men and women who make the American brewing industry the most creative in the world, as she notes. This includes selecting and preserving key or curious items from American craft brewing history including Papazian's homebrewing paraphernalia. Contained in a museum that also displays Julia Child's full kitchen, the American Brewing History Initiative is the first national-scale, scholarly effort to collect the histories of homebrewing and craft beer in the 20th and 21st century United States. Breweries in other countries have long made it a practice of preserving their beer histories. And while the biggest American breweries typically have private archives, that are rarely open even to scholars, smaller craft breweries haven't given much, if any, thought that what they were doing would be of interest to historians. McCullough is trying to change that mindset by collecting and displaying some of the industry's historic items. In our wide-ranging conversation, McCullough talks about homebrewing with her dad when she was a kid. We also discuss the importance of taking a broader approach to the history of beer and brewing in America one told through a very different lens than what you usually read in modern beer histories. And we talk about what a museum-based historian does when her museum is closed for months due to a pandemic. Here's our conversation. So, Teresa, thank you for joining us today on the Beer Edge podcast. Uh, You have what has been described is one of the great jobs, um, and, I, and I know when the Smithsonian was sort of looking around for, for someone to fit this position, that there were plenty of jokes online, uh, that everybody was, was perfectly fit for it. But the U.S., at least in my experience, and I haven't done a ton in the way of beer history, uh, has not always done a great job of, of keeping records or making records open to the public as compared to, you know, a lot of folks that I, a lot of breweries I know in Europe and Germany and specifically in Britain. In terms of the American history here, why has that been your experience in terms of, in terms of what you've seen from the availability of, of, of records and are we starting to do a better job with them? 
Well, and, and thank you for having me very much on your podcast. Um, you know, I think I think the question of the history of American beer is a really interesting one because uh, for so long, you know, for so much a part of our history, um, making beer and enjoying beer has really been kind of the stuff of everyday life. And so, you know, at the National Museum of American History, we say we preserve the exceptional and the everyday. So if you walk in the museum today, you know, if it were open to the public, you could see the ruby slippers from the Wizard of Oz, but you could also see you know, the post-it note. These are things that, that mm-hmm. fill our daily lives. And so, you know, beer in many ways has really um, has really filled that role. And so the work of brewing beer has been, you know, something that's not always been seen as a, a historical act, even if we might think that right. that is the case today. And that's that's wrapped up really in who has been doing the brewing for so many years, you know, whether that was women and enslaved people or mm-hmm. immigrants um, and then who has been doing the drinking and where they've been doing that you know if they've been um, enjoying their beer in a, a saloon or a beer garden and you know maybe it's a momentary pleasure um, those those experiences don't always seem like um, historical moments and before we got on we were talking a little bit about our mutual uh, residencies in in Cambridge <laughs> Massachusetts let's let's take a step back and just you know, sort of talk about your background, a little bit about, you know, where you grew up and then you, into your education and professional career. Sure. So, um, so I am originally from the D.C. area, from Washington, and I studied Romance languages originally at Harvard College. I studied French, Spanish, and Italian. And I think my interest in languages prompted certainly an interest in food and drink and travel, um, especially food preparation, you know, such that by the end of college, I was considering going to culinary school. Um, But right after college, I worked for the Central Intelligence Agency for three years as a French and Italian media analyst. Um, It was a it was a really interesting job, a, a wonderful way to use my languages. But uh, you know, I, I sat in a cubicle and, um, you know, I, I still had this kind of hankering for something more creative, especially related to food. And so I started to work um, in the evenings after after the workday for um, in the kitchen of a restaurant, a nearby restaurant. I just did simple prep work on the line during dinner service just to have the, ex- the experience of working during service to see if I liked it. Um, I worked a second night a week for a pastry chef who made wedding cakes. She had a professional kitchen in the basement of her house um, here in the DC suburbs and ended up helping to prepare my own wedding cake as part of that. Um, And then worked a a third night a week for the food writer, Joan Nathan, who at the time needed help from um, a research assistant who could speak French to look at into the history of of Jewish cooking in in France. And so those experiences confirmed for me that, you know, I certainly did what was very interested in transitioning into the realm of food and drink. Um, but in 2010, my husband and I moved back up to Cambridge. He was getting ready to start his PhD program at Harvard, and I worked for three years for the for Harvard University Dining Services. Um, they have an educational program called the Food Literacy Project. And when I was there, I managed Harvard's two farmers markets and organized things like chef demonstrations and cooking classes. And you know, this was during a time when I think a lot of the public was really starting to talk more broadly about eating and drinking locally, seasonally. And so it was, you know, it was a very exciting time to be there. I did go to cooking school um, at night, again, at, at, in the Cambridge School of Culinary Arts when I was in that position. But, you know, I, I still wanted to kind of pursue some of these questions from a more academic perspective. And I have always loved uh, writing. And so um, I entered the 
American Studies program, uh, the PhD program at Harvard, and um, completed my PhD there, um, studying the food and drink industry in New Orleans in the uh, 19th and 20th centuries, especially related to race and ethnicity. Um, and then it was when I was completing that degree, having moved around the country a bit via my husband's job to Madison, Wisconsin, Albuquerque, New Mexico, um, <clears throat> when the, excuse me, when the job ad popped up for the American History Museum, and it was just so, you mentioned it was just so um, amazing and, and uh, so unusual that I couldn't not apply. So was your, what was your thought of what you were going to do with your PhD before the Smithsonian uh job came around was it was there a thought of teaching was there you know what were your plans sure you know i think um a lot of many people in phd programs um envision teaching um but through the course of my time there you know on on the one hand i certainly understood the enormous constrictions in the academic job market which are very much in force uh, right now and um you know in some of my previous experiences especially working for harvard dining services and then through a a fellowship I had for Harvard Library, uh, you know, I had always been, I've always been very interested in um, conveying, you know, in, in, in speaking and teaching to a kind of broader public mm-hmm. and in, um, you know, attempting to distill or kind of um, express historical thoughts or, or you know, events um, in a format and in forms that are interesting and useful to a really broad um range of Americans. And so, you know, just the idea of being able to do that kind of work at the National Museum of American History was so appealing. And, uh, you know, it's it's very true that we have millions of visitors who walk through our doors every year. And, you know, when, when they do that, we always want visitors to see themselves reflected in the exhibits or in their experiences they have at the museum, because we understand that, you know, that's what makes that's what makes their their time there meaningful, and that's what helps people understand that we are all, you know, participants in American history. And so, how, walk me through a little bit about how you came to be at the Smithsonian. Did you see this job ad and think this is perfect for what I'm looking to do? Did you have a particular interest in, in brewing? Obviously, you had a background both in in food uh, and in drink, uh, both on the sure. you know both on the academic side, but also you know on on sort of more of the professional side. So what was right. it about this particular position that sort of piqued your interest? Well, I think, um, so first on the on the personal side, yes, uh, great and deep interest in food and drink. And, you know, aside from my own experiences, my father's family grew up in Milwaukee, and mm-hmm. I grew up with my dad homebrewing. So when I was young, you know, he would he would be brewing in the kitchen, and I would often be tr- trying to escape that. You know, I remember tying a bandana around my face because I, at the time I didn't find the aroma so appealing. But, right. you know, I'm realizing he started homebrewing in the uh, early 1980s, you know, with Charlie Papazian's book in hand, and um, just participated very much in the excitement of homebrewing um, at that stage, which, you know, it's still the case very much today. So I just grew up, you know, understanding the the pleasures and importance of beer and, and good beer, which was, you know, in our household defined as microbrew beer um, when I was younger, things like Sam Adams Boston Lager or, you know, uh, uh, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, mm-hmm. um, Anchor Beers. But, you know, I think the the job add to, um, to participate in this project, which we call the American Brew. Um, was so interesting to a historian because, you know, so often historians um, use archival collections that have been, you know, collected and, and kind of assembled and neatly organized for them by previous generations of archivists or historians. And so the um, the prospect of really getting to 
build a collection and, you know, do the work of, of traveling around and speaking with people and gathering artifacts, but also recording oral histories and then, you know, simultaneously interpreting those things as they're being gathered and, you know, using the, um, the platform of, of the Smithsonian to, you know, whether it's to exhibit objects or to host public programs, uh, you know, it's just, it, it seems like a chance to kind of, um, do the historical process along, you know, all points of the spectrum simultaneously. And that seems just like such a fabulously fun challenge. Um, so that, that, that was why I submitted. So when you get the role, you know, how, how do you approach it? Like, as we were discussing, there are plenty mm-hmm. of, plenty of subject areas where, you know, you could have relied upon or built upon the work of, you know, men and women who came before you for decades or, or a century or more. With this, at least in my, and, and certainly correct me if my perception is wrong, when it comes to documenting American brewing history and especially American craft brewing history, it seems like there hadn't been as much um, focus on it. Mm-hmm. Well, right. And so and my first step when I came in was to understand what what was already what already existed in the museum's collections related to the history of brewing and so you know i, I surveyed our our collections of objects and our archival collections and found that um we had really great rich records related to advertising history um mm-hmm. to brewing equipment from the late 19th century early 20th century uh, even a collection of sheet music related to beer and drinking songs but you know not too much beyond that and so it really for our museum was going to be a new collection and the effort certainly was to be national in scope um, and beyond that it was really you know it was really a blank slate and it's not there are there are wonderful regional collections related to brewing history mm-hmm. out there and I would love to direct listeners to places like the Oregon Hobson Brewing Archive yeah. at Oregon State University um, the Hagley Museum at the University of Delaware has wonderful business histories related to, to beer um, California State San Marcos um, uh, Milwaukee Historical Society but you know we wanted to take a, a national look and so I did you know I, I started I thought I'm going to begin at the beginning and so um, I, I did start with you know a focus on places like Northern California and, and Colorado which were um, you know the, the birthplaces of uh, American microbrewing and, and uh, home brewing um, in addition to other places you know especially in the 60s and 70s and 80s but over time um, you know our, our effort has never been to be encyclopedic and to sure. you know only go for the first and and the owners you know the brewery owners but you know, it's evolved into kind of trying to um, grab a cross section of the brewing culture of a city or a region. And so, um, you know, if I travel to places as I have in the past, like Cleveland or Pittsburgh or Milwaukee, you know, I love to speak to brewers who have been in business for 25 years and Mm -hmm. have, you know, can speak to changing consumer tastes over all that amount of time to people who have opened two years ago and, you know, have a nano brewery and this is their you know, their dream that they are, you know, scraping everything together to finance um, to people who are doing, you know, really different kinds of jobs in the brewing industry. So, uh, you know, uh, an artisan maltstress in Wellington, Colorado, uh, Twyla Souls, who only works with gluten-free malt, or, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, the designers at AJS Tap Handles in Random Lake, Wisconsin, who design most of the tap handles you might see in a a bar or a tap room um, when you enjoy your drinks. you know, to, to just all the many different kinds of people who make American brewing today what it is with the, you know, I, I think always, you know, as a historian, you know, what what would I want to see hopefully reflected in collections? You know, if I were researching here, 
in five years and 20 years or beyond. A lot of the scholarship that has been done um, either, you know, both in trade or in, for consumers audience has tended to focus on some of the original founders, as you said, to sort mm-hmm. of going back to the beginning in craft beer. And you're seeing a lot of, you've seen, you know, dozens and dozens of books and magazine articles and newspaper articles written about Fritz Maytag and uh, Ken Grossman and mm-hmm. Jim Cook and, and those names. And they, and maybe even, you know, going through to Sam Calagione and, and, and Greg Cook and, and names like that. But you know, with it, while a lot of ink has been spilled on, on on those individuals, you know they tend to be you know just white men from the the earlier days uh, of craft brewing who have gotten that. How do you broaden the perspective of both the collection and the museums and the initiatives focus to represent that that greater cross section? Because you said historically this is not the purview just of white men. It you know mm-hmm. brewing in this country has a long and uncelebrated history of being by of, of being produced and supported by those who are, who are not white men. Right. Yes, that's a great question. And I think you know part of the answer to that is um, you know relates to the kinds of sources that writers can work with and that historians work with. And it's so helpful to have um, very inspirational figures like Fritz Maytag and Ken Grossman and Charlie Papazian and so many others. Uh, with us now to tell their stories and, you know, these, these, uh, narratives of, of, you know, building microbreweries, you know, sometimes from welding together dairy equipment mm-hmm. are, um, you know, are, are really impressive. Um, but, you know, as you, as you acknowledge history is, uh, it shows us that, you know, the, 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 the stories related to American beer and brewing are much longer and much more diverse. And so, and writers are beginning to look to these older histories and, you know, un- uncover people like, um, you know, en- enslaved women in colonial and antebellum United States who were brewing beer and the kinds of sources that might be available to reveal those histories might be things like um, the ledgers and the Jefferson household that showed their purchases of hops that were grown by enslaved people in Virginia at the time or advertisements for, um, enslaved people offered for sale that note that they were skilled brewers and cooks, um, or you know snippets like a, a recipe for uh, molasses beer in uh, an 1824 cookbook, um, The American Housewife by Mary, Ra- Mary Randolph. So you know the the sources I, I think take a bit more piecing together, but you know I find that just wonderfully rewarding um, for people who are delving into that now and. And so for these histories of enslaved women, you know, that I just mentioned, um, Lee Graves, he's a a beer historian based in Virginia. He's been doing wonderful research um, related to these early histories. And um, uh, Dr. J. Nicole Jackson Beckham, she's she's Mm -hmm. also been doing some of this, too. So, you know, I think a lot of, uh, you know, as as the, um, you know, as consumers become more curious about um, styles and flavors in their beer that, you know, consumers are skilled at beer, you know, just in the way that brewers are skilled at beer in, in the United States, you know, there's going, there's a demand for a history that kind of matches the um, variety that we're enjoying now. We seem to be in a moment where society at large is taking a greater look at, you know, sort of the cultural issues, you know, before the country and specifically, you know, whether it's in criminal justice reform or a variety of other areas, but in the food world, you know, we're seeing kind of a reckoning along these lines as well. Are there specific, you know, stories or specific um, 
parts of you know American craft brewing history, even you know moving forward to as recent as the Black is Beautiful initiative, that you think you know, that you're excited to delve more into. Sure, and well, and I, th- I think the the big message from my you know my perspective is 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 a fairly specific one as a historian is that you know history is so key to understanding why we have the current demographics we have mm-hmm. in American beer, how we got here. And I hope then the second part of that is, you know, it points us toward the future, you know, how might we improve? So, you know, is American beer to, you know, today diverse? No, certainly not. You know, any demographic study you see will show quite clearly that, you know, mere, most beer producers and consumers are white men. This is has not always been the case. And so, again, history can help point us toward, you know, the past where we see that the current demographics of American beer are really the result of multiple overlapping and interlocking inequities that have really developed over many, many decades. And so you can look back to, you know, events like the the rise of the saloon, which in the 19th century, which was became a place for primarily men to drink beer, you know, beer became more associated with men in the public eye as early as that date, or, you know, in later eras, the exclusion of African Americans from unionized jobs in the brewing industry. I mean, that kept um, them from earning brewing expertise, but also kept them from access to stable jobs. Um, mm-hmm. Breweries and marketing companies that you know chose not to advertise beer to certain consumers, you know, in the same way they they did to white consumers. Distributors who didn't distribute to particular neighborhoods, you know, some some kinds of brands, you know, if they were happy to go to other neighborhoods or communities. Um, uh, over time as well, banks and other investors, you know, who who were and continue to be less likely to lend to African-American entrepreneurs. And so, um, you know, it's just, it's a a variety of systems that have really kind of built upon each other over time. And, you know, these are big and slow moving, you know, all this being said is, you know, is there an incredible variety of creative people working in American beer today? Of course, you know, are there people who have been working for a while now to make, beer more inclusive and equitable, yes. You know, so for so many people, this is not a new conversation. You know, they've been working on this. You know, people like, um, you know, I I give a lot of credit to the team at, you know, places like Beer Culture, um, Black Beer Travelers, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the Pink Boot Society, events like Fresh Fest and Suave Fest. um, And, uh, you know, so so many of the the newer initiatives too, like, uh, you know, you spoke with Garrett Oliver recently, about his uh, Michael Jackson Foundation, and you know the same goes for for Crowns and Hops and mm-hmm. for Craft Edu. You know all these very um, creative endeavors to to really kind of rebuild a foundation that um, you know was really not allowed to exist in the first place to kind of help you know really from from the the, the ground roots you know to build build a kind of equitable um, you know brewing culture that that we can have going forward. As you noted, we do use history to sort of help us, you know, guide the way forward and to sort of inform, if not quite prognosticate on on what is to come and how we can perhaps do better. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the craft you you said that the craft beer industry, in your opinion, is not diverse? And I think obviously that I think the facts pretty well bear that bear that out. Uh, do you think that the craft beer industry is inclusive? And do you think you? Are you sort of heartened to see, you know, looking back with the historians, you know, through historians' lens and uh-huh. uh, and keeping an eye on what's happening now, do you have some hope for, you know, things becoming more inclusive in the future? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, I think, you know, diverse and inclusive are different adjectives. Right. You know, are there inclusive people and practices and businesses 
Yes, for sure. You know, are, again, are we currently at a big picture state of diversity? No. And so, you know, the I think that the question for everyone is in in my specific capacity and your specific capacity with the resources that I'm fortunate to have, you know, what, what can we all each do in our capacities to build mm-hmm. better brewing communities of the future, uh, you know, or a better museum of the future or a better neighborhood that you live in. And so, you know, again, as a historian, my, my training prompts me to really understand the value of archives that are inclusive, that preserve the histories of people speaking from a variety of perspectives. And so, you know, I see my role based on my my training and my current position to really attempt to research and collect and lead um, lead public programming in a way that, you know, makes histories that I would hope to see in the future and that, um, you know, really incorporates voices into the historical record, um, you know, in a way that, that they'll be there forever at the Smithsonian. Before, going back before COVID, what... Um sort of exhibits did the American Brewing mm-hmm. History Initiative have on offer for the public? Um, or was it just was it just research that had been done? And what was the sort of the plan moving forward, assuming mm-hmm. things had continued as normal? Well, when I joined the museum, so it was in January 2017, I was very fortunate to be able to join the team that was preparing to refresh the food exhibit in the museum. So this is a very popular exhibit mm-hmm. on the ground floor, um, and it, Julia Child's Kitchen right. is the crown jewel of this exhibit. Again, um, for, again, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Yes, yes, that's right. So, yeah, curators um, went up to Cambridge and and collected Julia's kitchen and you know documented it meticulously and you know noted the placement of of you know all kinds of spices and utensils. You know if they were in particular drawers or on shelves, and then and brought the kitchen down to Cambridge and you know reinstalled it in the museum. And it's just it's a wonderful attractor to the larger exhibit behind it, which tells the history of um, social and cultural and technological changes in how we eat and drink from 1950 to the present. So um, a curatorial team and I, we did a really thorough look at the exhibit. We refreshed the script, the text in the exhibit, the artifacts on display. And then based on, on my position, which I joined the museum, um, we were able to create a new um, portion of the exhibit, which I called Brewing a Revolution, and it does tell the story of, of these um, early foundational figures in microbrewing and craft uh, and home brewing in Northern California and Colorado. So um, artifacts that I collected from Fritz Maytag, Michael Lewis, Professor Emeritus of Brewing Science at UC Davis, Charlie Papazian, um, and then Others, uh, including Jack McAuliffe and New Belgium Brewing Company mm-hmm. and Boulder Beer and um, Buffalo Bills Brewery in Hayward, one of the first brew pubs in the mm-hmm. U.S., um, those that new section of the exhibit opened to the public in October of 2019, last year. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, for the first time, we we now have you know the, the histories of uh, of microbrewing on display uh, on the you know on the gallery floor in the Smithsonian, which was just enormously exciting to open it and and um and also for myself i I can tell you to to install the exhibits you know to (laughs) to be able to physically place um you know charlie papazian's charismatic brewing spoon as he put it or (laughs) you know michael lewis's beloved brewing textbook that he used to teach his students you know until just the point of donation to the museum it's you know it's full of his scribbles on the margin and coffee circles and Mm -hmm. Um, you know, just to, to, to place those things, I, it's uh, enormously exciting. I, you know, I could never, I could never say it's otherwise, you know, could never take that for granted. And so, um, 
there's a you know those are wonderful things that we that are now on display and, and of course the museum has been closed to the public um, due to COVID for the you know the last six months or so um, we are very much on the path to welcoming visitors back and some Smithsonian museums are reopening this week um, so you know those will be available soon but um, you know recently I was able to go by the museum to pick up some books from my office and did a circuit through the food exhibit and visited, uh, you know, Fritz Maytag's coveralls and, mm-hmm. you know, everything is very safe and, and uh, you know, just waiting for waiting for us all to return. So um, so that that's what's on display now. And then, you know, of course, the experiences of the last several months have really, you know, changed the work of um, of all curators and, and collections managers at the museum. I mean, there's been quite a concerted and fast effort to think about how to collect the history of this current moment. Mm -hmm. And so that's certainly been very much the focus of my work um, while, while working from home for the last six months. And in your prior work, you would go out, do oral histories, interviews, you know, tangible moments with people in person. How is, how is, as a historian, how is that, that transition, this change been? Yes, for sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of my work typically involves travel and, um, you know, tours through the physical spaces where beer is made and enjoyed and, um, you know, and all of the personal interactions and sights and smells associated with that. Um, and so for all of us, I know this has been such a strange time of physical distance, virtual proximity and physical distance. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. we are all, we sign on to Zoom calls and we can see the, you know, the insides of people's living rooms now, of course. Um, <laughs> and, you know, there's there's a good part about that that sense of, uh, of being able to kind of tap into someone, even their face, you know, as soon as you sign on to a call. Mm-hmm. But but the casual sociability of, uh, of, of work and, and beer, you know, are not part of our lives right now. But... Um, but, you know, to, to consider how to collect this current moment, um, you know, I very quickly drew up a collecting plan that uh, I proposed to a museum committee, you know, as all curators do. And I've been having a variety of conversations with people all around the country to speak about um, potential items for donation. And so, you know, when I think about um, the things that can preserve the history of this moment, I've talked with people about things like um you know, beer packaging or labels or merchandise that are specific to this time, um, menus for delivery or curbside pickup, mm-hmm. you know, things like physical signage or, or decals that, you know, indicate social distancing, you know, at tap rooms or, or within the brewery, um, products that breweries are producing, you know, they've, if they've pivoted to producing hand sanitizer, you know, it's very reminiscent of Prohibition era breweries, for example, um, oral histories for sure. I mean, I've been able to continue recording those from home, um, and then this is, you know, this is an interesting time for um, for for certain kinds of objects to be, you know, what we call born digital in form. So, you know, whether it's design, you need to design assets that, that breweries are using to help themselves advertise to their customers that they're available for pickup or, you know, for delivery or things like, uh, you know, recipes for all together beer, the black is beautiful beers, you know, those are, um, those are resources that those breweries have made publicly available um, the design elements for those cans and you know it's as simple as as downloading mm-hmm. them um, the collections process is a little bit more is certainly more involved than just downloading them but those are things that are um, available in ways that they might not have been previously so you know all of these um prospective donors are are ready to go and i i can't talk about them specifically until um the donation is finalized but 
you know, everything is lined up and just um, waiting for the time when it's, uh, you know, it's when we're ready at the museum to bring these donations in. Um, but, but otherwise, you know, I've also been, you know, editing transcriptions of the oral histories I've recorded so mm-hmm. far. And um, I, I imagine you might agree, but sitting, you know, putting on headphones and listening to a recording of a conversation that happened in, you know, Seattle in December 2017 yeah. is very physically transporting in a way that's, um, yeah. you know, it's, it feels, it feels good. You know, it feels it's, yeah. it's sad then to take off the headphones and then realize, you know, that, that you're not there anymore. But, yeah. um, but that's, just that's, to hear the world going on in the background, if you're in a bar or a brewery and you can hear activity, sure. it's yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and just the, uh, the audio cues of just, you know, realizing, you know, I think the memory works in a way that, you know, when you're listening mm-hmm. to audio, you certainly can recall the setting where you were, where you were sitting in the larger, um, the experiences around you. Have have American craft breweries done a good job at at creating archives or, or maintaining you know pieces of history within their own you know within their own you know spaces? It seems like for most of their careers, most of these breweries are just you know trying to trying to survive, and they haven't really had a more global thought of mm-hmm. what we're doing here might be kind of groundbreaking or historic right. or interesting to the generalized public, and it just sure. it just sort of gets tossed aside. Right. And that's very understandable that, that, you know, we're talking about small businesses who, as you say, are, especially in this moment, are, are, you know, getting on their feet or struggling to survive. And I think it's an added, added issue when things like, um, you know, recipe systems or, or brewing logs go virtual, you know, go online and you don't, you no longer have um, paper, you know, hard mm-hmm. copies of brewing logs, for example. But, you know, so some breweries for sure have saved things and others less so. And it's, not so much because they haven't been careful, but like you said, they perhaps don't know that, you know, these are items of interest. And so, um, you know, I've certainly been, and it, via my work and travels, have asked people to set things aside like that to save them. And, um, you know, I think that's, a, that is also a consideration with regard to the current moment that um, because this, the, the pandemic, especially it was so, you know, arrived very suddenly and the situation changed very quickly, especially, you know, depending on where you might have been located, um, you know, certain items that might have been created in the brewery, you know, whether it, they were signs that might have been posted, you know, tap room closed until further notice or, mm-hmm. you know, a kind of, um, you know, new new delivery system that was drawn up, you know, those are, those are things that aren't monetarily valuable they were created quickly you know if the situation if the city moves into a new phase maybe something goes in the trash and you don't think you need it anymore but you know in other cases you might look back at a a sign you printed off in march and think you know wow this is already feeling poignant in a Mm -hmm. different way um so you know the, the again the conversations i've had i've encouraged people to just to to set things aside to not throw away those things and and so much of, you know, we started our conversation with this question, but so much of brewing history is ephemeral and not necessarily monetary valuable. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, it doesn't have monetary value. And so, you know, again, I think of things like, um, you know, like Charlie Papazian spoon and his plastic garbage pail that he used for homebrewing and his aluminum stepladder. And, uh, you know, it was very um, funny to him that when he donated those things to the museum, which he originally had purchased years ago at local hardware stores mm-hmm. or, you know, Kmart in Colorado, um, after those items had entered the museum collections and he, you know, he came and 
visited them with his, his family one day. Um, you know, we, we had him put on the purple nitro gloves because, mm-hmm. you know, no, these are artifacts in, in the collection now. And, you know, if you want to handle your spoon, here's your, and, you know, it was, uh, yeah. he, he found that uh, <laughs> amusing. But but things things are, are historical artifacts and historically important in ways that aren't necessarily immediately apparent. Um, but we want to be careful to have those conversations to make sure that those things don't aren't discarded. How do breweries respond to a suggestion that they should maintain these things? Do they do they sort of look around and then eyes open and real they start to realize the historic nature of them, or is it just something that they just never contemplated? Well, I think um, there's all varieties of uh, of responses, and you know, I've always found um, brewers to be very responsive and interested and. In, in, you know, I was expected to ask for guidance as to what they can save and how they should save it. And I, you know, there are, um, you know, I, think, I think that's something that archivists and historians can offer guidance on in terms of, uh, in, you know, how to how to preserve things. You know, there's certainly a receptive uh, interest and there's been a lot of enthusiasm, you know, for contributing breweries stories to um, my current COVID collecting. And uh, it's, so, you know, I think there's interest, you know, just uh, it's a conversation that's uh, that's ongoing, which is which is a good thing. Is there one person or one item or something of particular interest to you that you would love to have either for the collection or is, is just on a, a sort of a bucket list with regards to the mm-hmm. beer world? I um, I can't limit it to one that's that would be. <laughs> That would be too hard to pick. I mean, I, um, you know, this, so at this point I've recorded oral histories with 89 people, um, and each interview is unique and each, you know, each person comes with just a really unique set of experiences and interests that have somehow led them to be really phenomenal in beer. Mm -hmm. And I, my my list of people who I hope to continue to speak to is just never ending. Yeah. Um, but uh, so, yeah, I think it's it's uh, I, right before this COVID time began, I was supposed to make a research trip to North Carolina. And then this fall is scheduled to go to New England. And so, um, you know, there's kind of this alternate universe of, of trips I mm-hmm. almost took and, you know, will be rescheduled in the future. But um you know, I, I, there is no, I would say there's not a single, you know, Holy Grail object because everyone's, everyone's things that they donate, they give, you know, are, are the stories of themselves. And so they're, they're all, you know, just of, of enormous value. When the museum does open back up here, um, mm. whether it's post COVID or in a few weeks, what have you, then are you planning on being there on that first day? Would you, are you excited to just see the people mm. interact with the, the exhibit that you put together? I am. I um. I'm, I'm. I would. I'm always excited to see that. And uh, curators love to lurk <laughs> in exhibits mm-hmm. um, to, you know, to overhear conversations or to speak with uh, to speak with visitors. I mean, that's a great pleasure of the job. Um, the the museum is um, has staff on a different calendar, um, you know, than the public's return. And so, you know, certain staff members are are already in the museum, you know, as I mentioned, mm-hmm. keeping the building safe, the, the exhibit safe. And so I, I don't think that I am, you know, I am not on the same calendar as a, a return to the museum the day that the public returns. Yeah. But, um, uh, but we will, you know, we are 
are very much um, in communication with the public. And, uh, you know, one of these ways is that we are continuing to host our largest public event of the year for the Food History Project, which is our Smithsonian Food History Weekend in mid-October. And so this will be an all-virtual event, um, but that that's a way that we are going to be, you know, in your in your home, you know, on your screen um, mm-hmm. in just about a month, uh, you know, sharing a lot of the research and work we've been doing even during this time when we've been separated. And tell me a little bit more about that and where people can find more information. Yes. So, um, so this is the sixth annual Food History Weekend, and each year revolves around a theme. And typically we welcome thousands of people into the museum for cooking demonstrations, for um, panel conversations. We have a black tie gala that's a fundraiser for our food history project. Um, and there's always a brewing history component of it. So the, the theme of the overall weekend this year is um, uh, food futures striving for justice. And the theme of my brewing um, presentation or, or uh, event, which will be Friday, October 16th from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern, I'm calling it Beer Futures. So if the overall weekend is thinking about the future of food, you know, this this conversation is going to think about um, the future of beer. And so I have, um, you know, four really wonderful speakers who are, you know, all working to build very diverse, um, inclusive features of beer from different angles that are also complementary. And so um, we're going to have Letitia Cook, the CEO and co-founder of mm-hmm. Beer Culture, um, Tamil Maldonado Vega of Raices Brewing Company in Denver, um, Tiffany Fixter of Brewability Lab in Inglewood, Colorado, um, and then Diane Gooding of Gooding Farms in Parma, Idaho. And, um, you know, as I mentioned, all of these speakers are are thinking about, um, you know, kind of sustainable new future of beer. And uh, our wonderful moderator will be Ale Sharpton. Mm-hmm. And we're very excited to um, to also partner with Halftime Beverage to offer a beer box um, that participants can um register to receive at their homes prior to the event, the contents of the beer box are going to be curated by the panelists. So the panelists are all going to select beers to go in the box. Um, So 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern um, on Friday, October 16th. And we are about to release information related to registering for the event and also purchasing the beer box. The, The event registering for the event will be free. The beer box will be the only cost if you choose to purchase that. Um, but I think, you know, I think the best way that people can be the first to know when those links are released would be to to either follow the museum or me on social media. And uh, the museum's handles are at AM History Museum. Uh, and then my my social media handle on Twitter is um, at uh, Teresa, T-H-E-R-E-S-A-M-C-C-U, Teresa McHugh on Twitter. And I will uh, be delighted to release those links as soon as those are uh newly available. Well, Teresa, we're looking forward to that event. It sounds pretty fantastic. Um, Thank you. I do like the the combinations with the beer delivered to your home as well. It, it provides yes. a, a sociable experience in a otherwise difficult time. And I also right. want to thank you very much for, for coming on today. It's been a really interesting conversation. And I have been interested in the, in the American Brewing History Initiative for a couple of years and have been very excited to get down, you know, in the last few months or so to see the exhibit. It'll be delayed a little while, but I'm, I'm hoping to get yes. there soon. Yes, well, we'll be um, happy to welcome you when you do. Please let me know when you come. And uh, I really appreciate um, your time today. Thanks for listening to the Beer Edge podcast. 
My partner John Hall and I work hard to bring you fresh and insightful content related to the ever-changing world of craft beer. We're passionate about beer and independent journalism. If you're interested in supporting Beer Edge, visit our website, beeredge.com, which is updated regularly with new content, interviews, and articles. Please also consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your episodes. You can also subscribe to the Beer Edge newsletter on our website. Is there anyone you think that we should be talking to? Please drop us a line at andy at beeredge.com with your thoughts. Thanks for your support.